You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. We're in the second week of the sermon series called Awkward uh, Family Photos, in which we look at the lineage of Jesus Christ and how it came from a whole mess of broken people. Uh, my name is Todd Ballard. I'm the worship leader here at the church, and we're just really excited that you chose to be here today. I was talking to my wife about this, uh, this topic, and we were thinking about our own lineage, our own family tree, and what it looks like. And we started thinking about how broken it is just in our own family. Just a couple generations removed, uh, you can find a lot of craziness. And between my family and my wife's family, we have murderers, we have adulterers, we have liars, we have cheaters, we have preachers, we have... Uh, Atheist, we have just about the gamut, uh, abuse in multiple areas. It's just a bit crazy, the list of broken people that are inside of our own family line. And I would imagine the same is true for you as well. So we thank God for grace. There are two places in the New Testament that talks about the lineage of Jesus. And that's in Matthew and it's also in Luke. Now, both of these people, uh, when they're accounting the lineage, it all lines up until you get to David in these two lineages. And then Matthew and Luke don't say the same thing after that, which has caused a little bit of controversy. People would say maybe the Bible is an error because it does not say the exact same thing. So what we, what we found is um, that Matthew is tracing the line of Joseph, which is the legal, uh, Jesus' legal father, and Luke is tracing the line of Mary, Jesus' actual blood relative. Both lead back to King David either way you look at it. It shows that the Messiah would be eligible, uh, Jesus would be eligible to be the Messiah through David. Joseph's lineage goes through Solomon, and Mary's lineage goes through Nathan, both sons of David. So I want to just start, before we go any further, as we're going to look at David today, I want to just look at what this first uh, prophecy is, that is foretold. And this is 2 Samuel seven eleven that talks about the lineage of where the line of uh, David would come into play. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne uh, of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod yielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love for him will never be taken away as it took it away from Saul, whom I removed from you before." Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David the words of this entire revelation. So this is the first of a couple, a few prophecies that tell about the line of David be uh, part of Jesus' um, lineage. If you're taking notes, if you want to write down Jeremiah 23, 5, and 6, that is also where you'll find that and also in Psalms 132, 11. Okay, so we know that the Messiah is going to come through the lineage of... Uh, King David. So how does that tie into awkward family photos, you might ask? Oftentimes when we think of David, we think of David and Goliath, right? That's, that's the first thing that a lot of people think. Uh, but then if you know anything about the story, you know David had some shortcomings. And so what I want to do is look at one of those uh, big major mistakes in his life and look and see what exactly happened and see how God still could use him when there was a true repentant heart. So if you'll turn with me four chapters over, we're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now, there's going to be quite a bit of reading this morning to go through this text. And uh, so just kind of bear with me and kind of hear what, what the scriptures are saying. 
In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab without, with the man, king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent a messenger to get her. She came to him. He slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So what, what just happened? I mean, the first thing is he sent somebody to go find out about her as if it mattered one way or the other, right? He came, the person came back and said, she's married, by the way. It didn't even phase him. Why even ask anybody to go? David's the king. If he wants something, he gets it. Is that correct? That's how this works. But David, he knew that this was wrong. Remember, we're four chapters off uh, past when he was told that the lineage of the Messiah would come through his bloodline. He knew God. He lived for pleasing God. God had delivered him from, from Saul. And how could he make a decision to do something so wrong? Well, none of us in this room are free from temptation, are we? None of us are free from making giant mistakes in our life. I fight with it the exact same way you fight with it. The truth is, in a moment of weakness, we see David use his power to do something that he wants and shows absolutely no remorse. Pride has always been the number one sin. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, God comes and says, you guys can have anything, anything, but there's just this one thing. You can't have fruit from this tree And so what happens is, out of pride, they go and they choose to have fruit from the tree. And sin enters in the world, forever changing the course of humanity for the worst. I need this and I want this, and so I deserve this no matter what anyone says. We've all been there. So in a prideful moment of lust, David chooses to take another man's wife, sleep with her, and then return her as if she's nothing more than a one-night stand. You see how quickly pride can come in. And destroy what God had set up. There are ramifications for sin. It might not always happen this quickly, but it will come back and produce the crop that is planted in the ground. David's now got some serious issues, right? He's impregnated somebody's wife, and so how is he going to get out of this? Is he going to own up on this? Is he going to do what is right? What is he going to do? But before we keep reading the story, may I ask you this question? What would you do? What would you do if you're the king and you don't have to answer to anybody? If you were in this predicament. Verse 6. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come in from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and the Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go into my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. 
You see, David's hoping that if Uriah goes home, he'll sleep with his wife and will look as if he's the one that got her pregnant. So I can just imagine the angst, the anxiety that comes up on him when they come and say, hey, by the way, he didn't go in his house. How many times in our lives are we caught in this web of lies, of sin, and instead of owning it and asking for forgiveness, we try to get out of it by any means necessary, every way possible. We want to scapegoat. We immediately want to play the blame game. Go back to the Garden of Eden when they sin and God confronts Adam. He didn't confront Eve. He confronted Adam. And what does Adam say? She did it, right? That's who we are. We don't want to pay it forward unless it's blame. And so now David is in quite the predicament as his theory of bringing Uriah here didn't actually work. So we pick it back up in verse 12. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants and did not go home. Once again, this attempt to put blame on Uriah is not working. So David's like, what can I do, right? I've tried everything I can do. I I got a plan. And David thinks the unthinkable. And it's interesting, isn't it, how we sometimes uh, think that we can fool God if we can fool everyone around us? That's kind of what happens here. Shame comes in and it tells us that if we can cover things up with one more lie or one more thing, one more sin, that it'll all just work itself out. Verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of battle. All right, let me just tell you a little bit about Uriah. He's carrying his death sentence. He's taking it to Joab. He's that kind of a man of integrity that he's not even going to look at it. He just does whatever the king says. I find that so interesting. So now one sin has produced multiple sins. And what started as a a, a man that was after God's own heart has turned into an adulterer, a liar, a murderer. I posed this question to you a few minutes ago. I said, what would you do? And the truth is, quite oftentimes, we would do the exact same thing. We would try to run and figure out every option possible to blame it on someone else. We look at it and we say, well... If we tell Uriah, he might kill me, might lose my life. And I'm the king, what's going to happen to all the people? And then the list of garbage and lies that Satan throws at us just gets bigger, stronger, and more elaborate as we go. So what does David now do once we find him in this predicament? David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. I mean, so far he showed no remorse. You guys seeing any remorse in the scripture that I'm not seeing? Nothing. When Uriah's wife heard that the husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Can you imagine hearing those words? 
the thing that you've done displeased the Lord. I was a pretty typical uh, teenage kid. Uh, I tried to stay out of trouble in every way possible. I just like to have fun, but uh, I was never one to cause my, my parents frustrations. I tried to stay on the straight and narrow. The only time I'd really get in trouble is just talking back, which is still something I'm not real great at, about being good at. So, uh, but I remember this one time I got in trouble and I can't even remember what I got in trouble for. But I remember my dad looking at me and said, Todd, I'm not mad at you. I'm disappointed in you. And I just, it just rocked me. I felt like I was two feet tall and shame had overwhelmed me. You see, I knew my dad loved me. I knew he had my back and I knew that he was proud of who I was. To hear those words that I had disappointed him truly hurt me at the core. This is something that we should think about when it comes to disappointing our father. It should penetrate our souls with sadness. The one who's done everything for us to have life and oftentimes we've sinned against him. I find it a bit odd that David knows right from wrong and then just keeps going with these sin and sin. He just wants to sweep it under the rug and hopes that it never comes back up to haunt him. Have you ever done that? Yeah, we probably have all done that. It's not real realistic though. It doesn't always work out that way. You guys remember prophet David, four chapters before this told uh, prophet Nathan, I'm sorry, told David that God was going to send the Messiah through his lineage. He comes back on the scene. This is chapter 12 now. And he says, I got to tell you this story, David. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and one poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man <coughs> had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food. It drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep to, or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. David wants retribution, right? He hears the story and he says, well, this is wrong, man. I said this two weeks ago from the stage. We often want retribution, but we don't ever want to think about our own sins. We don't want to think about the depravity of our own soul. So here's where the story can go bad to worse really, really quickly. This is Nathan's response. <coughs> Excuse me. Nathan said to David, you're the man. This is what the Lord, a God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judea. And Judah, I'm sorry. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. I find the father's love so extravagant. He's like, even if everything I've given you, I would still have given you more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I, will bring, I am going to bring calamity on you. 
Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and bring them to the one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Okay, just imagine this scene. David doesn't have to listen to this. He's the king. At any given moment, David could flip out and say, you don't talk to me that way. I'm the king, right? He could have had Nathan killed right then and there. Because let's be honest, in the web of lies and sin, what's one more death? What's one more murder? But he listened to Nathan. He listened to Nathan because he trusted Nathan. He knew it was time to make things right. You see, once again, we can fool every single person in our lives, but you cannot fool God. And when he calls us out on our sin, there is no place that we can hide. So David does this. Verse 13 says, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He owns up and he repents, which is the one thing that God's called for all of humanity to do. And yet our bent towards being prideful oftentimes helps us not to do it. And it's interesting if you think about it, the one that we should care the most about making things right with, we oftentimes will run from. We'll try to make things right on this earth. We'll try to heal relationships. But the one who never holds a grudge, who never will remember our sins, who will forgive us, who will never forsake us, is standing there waiting for us to go and make things right. And oftentimes we do the opposite. Why? Is it shame? Is it pride? Is it a lack of understanding of who God really is? You see, God doesn't want you to fail. He doesn't want you to fall. But when it happens, all he's asking is that you would make, have some sort of desire to make things right inside your heart, to feel the difference between guilt and shame, and to make things right, knowing that our Father is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. So in light of this story of David, I have a few questions for you this morning. First question is this, do you have a Nathan in your life? Do you have someone that can call you out on the junk in your life and your, proud, your pride will allow that to happen? I had a friend in Denver that was like a brother to me. I lived there for 11 years and, <clears throat> excuse me, he lived there for 10 years. We started a church together. We hung out together. We spent countless hours together. One of the closest friends I'd ever had in my life. Before I moved, we went to lunch one day and he started telling me some stuff about myself and the way I come across that was not easy to listen to. I felt a little bit betrayed as he told me these things and hurt. I could feel it welling up inside. But I listened to him because I trusted him. Those character traits or flaws, if you will, they're not easy to change, but I've desperately tried to never be that man that I was at one time. There were no major sins in my life, no adultery, anything like that, just things that I needed to get better at. And I'm so grateful that this person spent time in my life enough where when the time needed for me to hear the truth, I could listen to him. Forever grateful for that conversation. Second question I have for you is, are you a Nathan to someone else's life? One of my favorite things in this world is connecting with people. I love it. I truly enjoy getting to go around and get to meet new people. 
It's not always easy. As pastors, we have to carry the weight of a lot of people, a lot of prayer requests and so forth. But it's totally worth it, getting to know people. And I'm a firm believer that if you buy into someone's life, God will open up dialogue where you can call each other to live a higher standard. I have a large number of people that I try to be a Nathan for, and they know my heart. So if I come to them, they know that I'm not doing it to be mean. They know whatever I have to say to them, I'm doing it as an act of love because I've earned that trust. Someone in your life today, I promise you, needs you to be a Nathan to them. We all need accountability. Will you do so? Third question is, are you truly repentant when you go to God for your sin? I know for me, I can easily chalk up its brokenness and insert grace and just keep moving like nothing ever happened. Never feeling remorse, never feeling guilty, never feeling the way I felt when my dad told me he was disappointed in me. Having the Lord disappointed in us because we choose to run and hide instead of go and make things right. Oftentimes that's what we do and it just hurts. Is his grace still sufficient? I think so, but the thought of the creator of the universe looking down and saying, Todd, you are better than that. It just hurts. Coming to God with a sorrowful and repentant heart will every single time move the hand of God. So why would we run from that? Well, listen, Satan's a punk. That's why we run from him. He constantly comes at us and tells us lies and tries to make shame become our identity. But listen to me, church, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Only God could take a messed up situation like this of King David and choose to put himself, that King David choose to put himself in and make something good out of It's the beauty of God and his love for humanity. He knew we'd mess up. He knew we were broken. And yet using broken people was always part of his plan. Which brings me to this last question is this. What is that big mistake in your life that's holding you back from doing what God has called you to do? What sin has you so entangled with a web of lies? Meanwhile, God is saying, I'm still here. I've went nowhere. I still love you. I still need you. I still want you to be the church. As I thought about this story this week, I thought about the lineage of Jesus, which I don't really think about all that often. It's a lot of, a lot of scripture that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's just this person begat this person and a bunch of stuff. But I started thinking about it. if I was writing this story, I mean, I sure would have picked the best of the best to write the story of my king. I would have found the most spotless people on earth to send my son through. Here's the problem with that mindset, though, is that spotless people are hard to come by, aren't they? I sure would have done everything in my power to make it humanly possible to get the best because it really doesn't make sense that God, perfect, would come down and come from a bunch of broken and messed up people The lineage of Christ coming to save us from our sins doesn't make sense to come from simple people, does it? You see, that's that's where the story becomes a love story. God in his infinite wisdom and his power and perfection chose to come into this world to save what was broken, what was forgotten, and what was shameful. 
the story of Jesus coming from the lineage of broken and sinful people is a direct parallel to the church. The church is full of sinners and adulterers and murderers and liars and cheats. And the list goes on and on with every kind of sin. But because of the greatest gift that we have ever received when we celebrate two weeks from now, Christmas, Jesus' birth, born out of a bunch of broken people, we now have hope. The church is messy and there will always be that crazy uncle, right, that gives us the black eye. But it just radiates of grace. We had the Caleb Christmas here tour here two weeks ago. It's the third year we've done it. It's a lot of fun bringing this tour in. The opening band was a band called Unspoken. They sing a song I love called Call It Grace. The, the word says it's nothing less than scandalous that Jesus took our place. Call it what it is. Call it grace. The story might end with David's bloodline producing the Messiah, but it wasn't with that child that was born of adultery. That ends tragically seven days after that birth of that son, he passes away. And David is once again reminded that what he did displeased the Lord. David and Bathsheba go on to have more kids. The first son born is Solomon, where the legal line of David comes through that we read about in Matthew. The sec, uh, another child comes, and it's Nathan, where the bloodline through Mary, which we read about in Luke. But it didn't come without pain, did it? It didn't come without ramifications. She sin always has a way of coming back around and robbing us of the joy in this world because what is sown will produce a crop. Can God still use us? Absolutely. Will he forsake us? Never. Will your lives fall apart in the midst of the sin? I promise you, yes. Sooner or later, they will. The story never gets old, though. The story of grace. You look at David and Bathsheba, and you can automatically think about the sin, and yet grace was abounding right then and there. He can take the most jacked-up situation and turn it into a happy ending. That's what our God does. And he uses broken people. The question is, can he use you? Are you ready to be used? He's not done with you. I promise you that. Are you hiding in a web of lies? Feeling overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Today is the day to make things right. To come to the altar, pour your heart out to the king. His love is extravagant. And his grace is unblemished. Are you ready to be used by God? Are you ready to be that Nathan that he's called you to be for other people? Are you ready to lay down your pride so that when somebody comes to you to tell you something, you can hear it? Today is the day, church, that we make things right with our king. Because this story is proof that he's never quite done with us. If we have a repentant heart, he can take the worst situation and make it great. Won't you close your eyes and bow your heads? Father, we, we love you. We thank you for your grace. We look at your grace and we say how undeserving we truly are. We, we want retribution for all the junk in other people's lives. And yet, <clears throat> if we're being honest and we opened up our heart and we told everyone what you see, we would all stand ashamed. 
because we're all broken. And yet your love said, I came from broken people. I'll literally send my son through broken people to heal broken people, to save broken people. And so now we come to you as broken people desperately needing you to fix us, desperately needing you to put us back together, put the pieces back together. God, I love you and I thank you for all the blessings that you've given to us. I thank you for two weeks from now that we will celebrate the greatest thing that ever happened to this earth and that is the birth of your son. Father, may you be glorified in this place this morning. We pray this in your son's name, Jesus, amen. If, if one of those questions I asked you radiated with your heart, just come to the altar. Our church is not great about wanting to come up and pray, and yet every single person probably has a prayer request right where you're sitting. And I'm not saying there's anything magical, magical about coming up you get to that place where you need God to intervene so badly, you'll do whatever it takes. The web of lies of sin can stop today. So as we sing this next song, I encourage you to come up, pray. There'll be people that would love to pray with you. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, there'll be people that would talk you through what that looks like. Remember this, his love is extravagant. And his grace is unblemished. Won't you stand and worship with us?